we did it to show the world how important creativity is and that technology can help us to be more creative. We're not saying that AI is replacing us. We would like to give that algorithm to the world and have fun and create. Only two, but less than 2% of the world is living off of creativity. As kids, we are super creative. Something is happening. We need to be more creative. And that's my mantra. Be creative with everything. You can creative in business. You can be creative driving the car differently. Take a different route the next day and start with little steps and write music, write poetry, paint, invent something. Just enjoy it. This week's guest is sound inventor Walter Warzawa. Walter has lived an extraordinary life. From his inspiring film scores, globally recognised audio branding, to creating music as medicine, creativity through sound has powered Walter's life journey. I met Walter in March here in Austin as South by Southwest went out for a drink with an old colleague from McCann, New York. On hearing Walter's inspiring story, I decided I had to interview him. Walter kindly agreed, but we had to wait until he was back in Austria. In the interview, Walter recounts the early influence of his parents and how from childhood music has defined his identity and life arc, and how serendipity has certainly played its part, from the purchase of a keyboard in Vienna to arriving in LA to study film scoring. Serendipity has created pathways to finding mentors, composing for Disney, making connections that led him to create the legendary Intel Inside Audio Mnemonic, to building a successful audio agency, to ultimately applying his expertise in sound to create his health tunes startup described as music as medicine walter's story is one that is powered by his curiosity his creativity and unwavering persistence he also provides much inspiration and advice to others on striving for balance the importance of focusing on the present and the power of embracing your difference for listeners of the podcast you might remember when we interviewed emily oberman from pentagram and she described it as embracing herself as a beautiful weirdo I think you'll be inspired by the musical journey of Walter Werzawa. All right, Walter, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you very much for making the time all the way from Vienna and Austria. Hey, Mark, so good seeing you. Talking to you again last time in Austin. Now Vienna, what's the next city? (laughs) Yeah, Los Angeles, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. So before we talk about your really interesting journey as what I believe you call yourself as a sound inventor and also a founder, entrepreneur uh, and founder of Health Tunes, could we really dive into your backstory and understand a bit more about where you come from and the influences? I believe you were born and raised in Vienna, Austria, Mm -hmm. to a conservative family, four brothers Mm -hmm. and with doctors as parents. Mm -hmm. So really be fascinated having heard you talk about a little bit about the your parental upbringing the influence of your parents and particularly your 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 father in the journey and the guidance and support they gave you isn't it amazing how our parents influence us and how shocking it is now to know what how we influence our kids and um i think i came to the awareness there is no perfect parent and don't even try to be perfect and that really created a lot of peace with my upbringing. It's like my upbringing was, I think, different. I did not talk. I didn't say one single word until I was three. And so my parents... Out of fear? I, <laughs> I, I can't remember. And I also blocked out my childhood for the most part of it. But I think 
I'm a good listener, and I think that helps me in what I'm doing, music. My wife loves to talk, and, and it's just great to listen to her. And, and sometimes there are stretches of 10 minutes, and just like to take it in and um, observe. And I think that turned into a special gift for me to observe, to be very analytic, and then do something with the information and not just get scattered right away. And the interesting part was, apparently, after those three years, suddenly there was this one day where I talked in full sentences. It was from zero to talking, and it just happened this way. Maybe it's also sometimes a belief I hear the world differently, and who knows how you really see and hear the world. I can only assume you listen and see a similar world than I have. But the older I get, even thinking, I think we all have such different experiences. And sometimes we see and hear the same thing and have such a different perspective on it and the context. And, and that makes it so beautiful that we all... That's really interesting. I never thought about the concept of our senses, our hearing, that we might hear things differently. I mean, obviously, you can <laughs> interpretation of what you hear someone say. But the sounds around us, I've never thought about that, in that someone might hear different sounds and be on a different spectrum to someone else. That's fascinating. I think it's plausible. And, and hearing is so important. Blind people see through audio. They can do that, like that clicking sound. It assess mm -hmm. space and even textures. And like bats. Yeah, yeah. it's like the, the reflections yeah. you get. And mm -hmm. we can transform with changing sound, and that's what we do in immersive experiences now. You can record your Foley sound, your movement, the clothing and the clothes and, and the steps and whispers and breathing, and transport us into something totally different. And our brains believe that right away. And that's also the power of VR, that even though we walk on this imaginary board <laughs> and walk mm -hmm. over like the, the seventh floor of a, of a skyscraper and we know we are safe, we know logically we're safe, but it's hard to walk out there. And even if this is mm -hmm. just a drawn space. So I think our mind can be tricked so immensely and guided and, and, also calmed, I mean, and that brings me to music medicine. I think we can do so much with sound. And in audio branding, we can lure people to buy more or less, to eat faster, to eat slower, whatever you want. And and the power of sound is astronomical. Mm -hmm. Do you remember, I mean, given, I, I believe that you didn't, or heard you another interview talk about how you weren't, uh, exposed to, let's say, rock and roll or contemporary music until you were probably in your early teens. But do you remember at an early age when you became aware of the power of sound and music or attuned to it? And where, I mean, I know you've got brothers. Was it just you or were you all, all of you very similar in terms of your musical interest and, mm. and, and uh, I suppose, talent? So my older brother is almost two years older. <clears throat> And um, I know we kind of discovered that there's another world out there than classic music. And you know, those were the days you would walk into a shopping in the mall and there was no sound there. It's like you, don't, you didn't have like 
ubiquitous sound. No, yeah, we didn't have shopping malls in Scotland in the in the sixties. <laughs> yeah, or it's like, like a, sh- a shop was quiet. It's like you could hear people talk, but there was no music. The cars you didn't automatically turn the radio on. If the radio was turned on, it was the fathers or the mothers who wish. Now it's yeah. the opposite. It's like we can't listen to the music we want to. It's all about the kids now. And everything is shifting and you walk in an elevator here music and you walk into a stairwell here music and the mm. gym has music and I think it's always music and there's I think it's too much sound there and we're always in this bubble. But at that time there was a lot of silence and I really I'm happy that I lived through that world of silence as well. Then when I was 13 and in school we went to the ski weekend and I only had listened to classic music so far and was never exposed to anything else and suddenly at the first dinner there was a jukebox and somebody put his shilling in and listened to Not Much City and I've never heard a sound like this and for me I think it was an experience it's um, it, I've never had something as strong before or after. It was physically, it downed me. I could sit and not move. And it was just incredible to hear those sounds, those harmonies, the rhythm. It's everything. That incredibly sexiness, that rawness, that energy, that beat. It was just a new world. I think it was if I would put you on Mars and you would get stunned. And I only had something similar going on roughly 30 years later when I was in Los Angeles coming home from UC and listened to radio. And I heard Samuel Barber, the adagio for strings for the first time. And again, it's like I had to get off the freeway and park there because I couldn't move anymore. It was just, it's it's like an incredible drug experience it's like all my hormones and chemicals mm-hmm. got mixed up the dopamines and prolactines and it transported me to somewhere totally different so i mean that that clearly sort of defining moment in your early life set you was that a moment when you suddenly went in a different direction with your ambitions and your desire to pursue a career in music i mean was it something when you had when that sort of experience, when you returned from that trip, did you say to your parents, right, okay, this is this is how I want to focus my career in music? Wish it was or were those ambitions? <laughs> that profound, it was much simpler. Because it sounds like quite a cathartic experience, just having yes. this, or not cathartic really, but it's yeah. a transformative. Absolutely, absolutely correct. It was, I, I, I still can't find the right words to that it was just overwhelming and incredible powerful physical emotional everything but my wish to do music was something much simpler i was very shy and not into dialogue and once you're 13 years old and a boy and realized that there was a girls in class but they only in my, from my perspective looked at the guys who played music and it was so easy and with this one guy who played guitar and all the girls were always around him. I said, oh my God, I have to learn guitar. <laughs> <laughs> that will solve any of my challenges and problems. 
So fortunately, one of the assistants of my father at the at the the office, the doctoral office, said she wants to take guitar classes. And if I want to join, it's like everything f- fell into place. I can do it. And so I joined the first class and I was mesmerized by the sound of the guitar and how the, this, the, it was a young teacher I played. And it, I was glued to it and I uh, wanted to have a guitar. And I got my parents were great in that sense, got me a guitar. And from then on, I just played the first two hours a day. Presumably, you're already um, a musician and trained in piano or some other instrument. Yeah, I had piano classes and we have music in school and it is something powerful, but it was not clear to myself or anybody I want to be a musician. I didn't think that far. It's just seeing Mm -hmm. the friend on the guitar and swarmed around. It was like, oh my God, I want that. And so, and then... I just practiced and practiced and practiced. And after a year, I practiced much more than anybody else. I suddenly had this idea. You got the girl. No, that was, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> it was not interesting. For Suddenly, it was only the guitar. And I was very focused. And I wanted to be accepted at the conservatory. And so I played this one piece of music, the partita. Of, and after that year, I could really play it well. And that I taught myself because the teacher thought this is too soon. You just started guitar and you need to do the basics. And mm-hmm. I, I inscribed and got to like a, like an audition with the professors. It's like, it's very prestigious the, the conservatory and university basically had the same kind of standard in guitar. And I got in and they just thought I'm this wunderkind and at the first lesson, then in September, I think all the other students would sit there, the youngest, and the professor would say, oh, Walter, so good to have you here now. Let's warm up. Can you play a, I don't know, F-sharp minor? And I said, I don't know how to play F-sharp minor on guitar. And they oh, like, thought, he's funny too. <laughs> he can play it. He's funny. I said, no, I really don't know how to play it. I play for one year now, and I can play it that Bach piece, <laughs> silence. <laughs> it was like incredible <laughs> silence. I thought, oh my God, now they will kick me out. But that professor liked me and said, you know what? Okay, let's start from scratch. And so they normally wouldn't do it. He taught me from the beginning and it was a wonderful journey into guitar and then guitar is such a different instrument and every instrument is amazing, but also, guitar, again, is a lower instrument. It's like you have those fingernails, and if they break, you can play. And, of course, as a teenage boy, having long fingernails on one hand and filing them and putting lack on so they don't break, it's not, it's not very great to, to be seen with, with, with other guys. And, but it was, and, and you always practice on your own. There's hardly any literature with other musicians. You never, use a metronome so you have your own rhythm feeling your own emotional sense and and it's yeah it's a very particular instrument did you have any ambitions at that point to be i mean obviously there's some great guitarists from that era you know when you think about hendrix or jimmy page and people like that but did you have any ambitions to be a great 
guitarist and get into rock and roll, given that you had been so moved when you heard Not Bush City Limits, you could have gone down that path and said, I am going to be, I'm just going to rock the world. But you didn't. You went down a different path. What was it that, that, that set you in a different direction? It might sound incredibly pretentious, and I really don't mean it this way. To me, it wasn't, I want to be a guitarist. It was just it. I was in that world, and I didn't think two years, three, five years ahead. It's like, I play guitar. This is, I want to do it. I am doing it, and I do the best I can. I loved classical guitarists like Segovia and, and Bream, but also mm. George Harrison and, and Gilmore. It's like, oh my God, it's like I'm seeing him live when he played. It's like, Who? It's like Pink Floyd, David Gilmore. It's like, oh, right. It's oh, like Dude, Gilmore, of course. Robert, yeah. Robert yeah, Fripp. Amazing. It's like, those are my God. Those are just geniuses. And oh, I'll tell you, just, I'm just going to jump in there. Mm-hmm. When you mentioned Robert Fripp, I think you probably left South by Southwest and I went to see the Robert Fripp documentary. Mm-hmm. Incredible. I mean, talk about perfectionist. So it was, the film is called, or the documentary is called, in the court of the Crimson King. Like the records. And yeah. he, yeah, he'd never allowed, Robert Fripp had never allowed anyone to document his story because he never felt anyone could do justice. And he didn't really know what the documentary would be supposed to, the purpose of it would be because he is such, obviously, a perfectionist. And, you know, after 50 years of practicing his art, you could say, and uh, he allowed this documentarian in to follow them around. And it is extraordinary. And the only thing I can describe and compare it to is I saw a film a few years ago called uh, Jiro, The Art of Sushi, about a sushi restaurant in a Japanese station about this one man that had been making sushi Mm -hmm. and have never perfected it for 50 years, Mm -hmm. 60 years. And it's the same thing, that he feels he's never quite achieved perfection and he practices for hours a day still. And it's just incredible. So when you talk about David Gilmore and obviously Robert Fripp, but he just made me think about just that, that pursuit of a belief of the, it's a craft Mm -hmm. that can never be perfected. And it's it's a life of exploration. And and especially King Crimson, always very, very different. They were pioneers. And they went through many transformations, but they always were on the cutting edge and, and so is Pink Floyd but in a different way it's like Pink Floyd I think it's the band but King Crimson it seems it is really Fripp's intellectual pattern melody composition style it's it's really really incredible well I'm glad for you that you saw it I have to I have to check that out too I think I think you'll enjoy it thank you for mentioning Mm. And, and, and yeah, those guitarists are amazing. Then I know it's like now mid, I'm, I don't know, 17 and band and, and especially Gilmore, you see him so many times with this guitar and having a cigarette in the, in the pegs. So I tried the same thing, but then it's like, I always wanted to smoke, but it was awful. And then the smoke goes in your eyes <laughs> as you play. Like, it's like, I, I admired as a Gilmore for how can you do this? Like, playing guitar and having the cigarette in there and, and not blinking with the eyes. It was it was like comedy for me. So I gave up smoking. It's like I tried, but it didn't work out. Luckily, 
And and I realized you don't have to smoke to be a guitar player. And um, I really got so many times so lucky. Like it's to be at the right place at the right moment. I I remember another big thing that changed my life was I'm looking through a paper, music paper, and I see a picture of Georgia Maroder somewhere in Hollywood in front of a swimming pool and playing a Roland Jupiter 8. It's like this monster keyboard. This is like now probably 1980, 79, 80. So So that was after he'd um, worked with Donna Summer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And super successful. And um, I don't know this picture. Again, mesmerized. It's just him and the keyboard, basically. And I have this idea. I have to have this keyboard. I have to get a keyboard like this. And I'm a student at this time and um, having a couple of students teaching them and doing sometimes a little film work or commercial work. And I remember it was 118,000 shillings. So at the time, probably ten, twelve thousand dollars or so. But I so knew I have to get this key. And I'm not a keyboard player, but I had to get this. So I took a loan. And funny enough, that bank person gave me that loan with no income. And I bought this and I got a little bit better deal because of the people, the rule, and they were very supportive. to wow, want this. I think it was the second person or first person in Austria buying that. And I learned that in and out. It's like I spent again hours and hours and I know this instrument so well. And programmed for other people. And at one time in the morning, it's like nine o'clock in the morning, I'm getting a call from a studio where I've left that keyboard. And, hey, Walter, we need you. There's this classical composer, Otto van Zucker, who needs a specific sound. Can you do it? And I said, okay. And hop on the tram. And 15 minutes later, I'm at the studio. And here's this incredible musician, Otto M. Zucker, he was the first to play Schoenberg piano by memory. Immense hearing, wrote operas. And it's this guy with a gray beard and like this professor, musician, like like Brahms kind of type. And he says, oh, Walter, um, I need this and this and this sound can make it like that. And I want to have this emotion. And I kid you not, it's like, it's like okay, um, let do a little bit. I got lucky as well, and he played it. And said, oh my God, this is exactly what I needed. And played it, and it plays incredibly well. And then I see the backstory is they tried for the last two days to find a good sound for him. They always said no. So obviously, then he said, Walter, we have to work together. And he's a guy who writes operas and is famous, and Bernstein wanted to collaborate with him. So, like, really, like, in that world, uh, a known mm, entity. Wow. And he became a mentor. And I adored him, and I th- we really loved each other, in, like, in a musical sense. And I learned so much mm-hmm. that one phone call and that one picture, and then I programmed for Falco. Serendipity is the core of why I do this podcast and that seems mm-hmm. to be a defining serendipitous moment yes if you hadn't seen that image of Maroder yeah. if you yeah. hadn't got the bank loan if you hadn't left the in the studio yeah yeah and the next thing is so the person who sold me that keyboard at the time called me when I came back to, to Vienna he heard about it and, and 
So talked about that story, about the picture. That's why I bought it. And I know that picture. I can send it to you. <laughs> and he sent me that picture. Like, and it was just funny. So suddenly, this is now, whatever, 40 years later, I'm getting that picture again. It, it's a, it was just a beautiful cycle in that sense. And mm-hmm. I am not a serendipity was like a postgraduate film scoring at USC and amazing teachers, Jerry Goldsmith, Bruce Broughton, David Raxin. They were all there and were all teachers and amazing teachers. And at the end of the graduate studies, a friend of mine said, hey, Walter, Disney is looking for trailer composers. And that it, I had no clue what a trailer was. It's like, is it more okay? And I think it would be perfect for this. You do classic and modern and this and that and sound. This is when you were in LA. You got yeah. to UC Berkeley, UC Southern California. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Film scoring. Yeah. I'm not really taking it serious. It's like I never really worked for a company. And those were the days you had to send in a cassette with your work. So I had a chrome. TDK chromium cassette, like those golden ones. And I yodeled a little bit and then I said, you know, I'm a pretty good composer. And if you really want to work with me, call me 213-500-5080, my cell phone number. Then a cowbell and, and some cows walking off sound. So wait a minute, this is a, for tra- a trailer, just an example of some sound composition not specific to a particular brief or a trailer of a film it's just just to get the job it's like basically said it was you know disney if you're interested to be a staff composer in the trailer department send in your best work uh. preferably trailer music you've done and trailers you've done and resume and blah 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 blah, blah. it's like just a job uh, description okay. so i just naively just send in this audio cassette and that's it and Two weeks later, I'm getting a call from Disney and saying, wow, it was really interesting. And it kind of blew us <laughs> away. We're interested to talk to you. Please come by at Disney Studios. And so I'm driving up Disney Studios. Like, oh my God, he's like this boy from Vienna. And it's like at the Disney Studios. It's like, this is, it's unbelievable. Wow. It's like if you grew up in Europe and you're suddenly there and you see things you've seen in movies. And we grew up with Disney movies and my heart is beating. And I had a good interview and they hired me and I learned a lot there. And I worked for half a year. Fortunately, unfortunately, the the director of the department was never there. I think he took it easy and let me do whatever. And so basically I was doing everything there and sometimes he came by and that was it. And so I really learned a lot and I got really thrown into the water and had fun with that. And... So you were doing trailers for what sort of movies? There were, there were times I went to the movie theaters and, and the probably eight to ten trailers and five of them were my music in Hollywood. <laughs> wow. And it was just beautiful feeling. It's like, oh my God, and this and that. And, and also trailers were different at the time. You really had somebody compose specifically for that trailer and work with an editor. Mm-hmm. It's very different though. In a way, it's, it's, it makes sense because you were, you had gone on to, to study film scoring, which is a question in its own right is why that specifically film scoring and not classical, some other form of sort of classical exploration or music. 
But it, it it's funny when you think about the great film composers like so John Williams and like and Hans Zimmer. You know, you'd think that the trailers would be aspects and elements from what they've actually created. The when the trailers are produced, the, the composers didn't even score to that movie. Um, ah. Sometimes teases are a year before the movie gets released. They um, just mm-hmm. barely start writing for it. So and also. The cuts are so different. You could take an amazing track of that score and try it on a trailer. It wouldn't work because it's edited quick mm-hmm. and it's just three parts of and course. often has like lead ups and the supers come in and if the score is something totally different, it's very different. And, and again, I learned to be really fast and I learned about this incredible machine in, in Los Angeles. You could get a job assignment to write something orchestral and have it done the next evening, done, mixed, deliver. You couldn't even dream of that in any other place in the world. It is so fantastic how everybody knows exactly what they have to do. And I was in a beautiful way, never did more than that because sometimes we mean well. Mm-hmm do a little bit more and that confuses the chain of commands and it just really worked incredible and and you learn to write fast and to listen again it's like you sit in a meeting with an editor and sometimes the director or the trailer department and they just give you the ideas and driving quickly home writing and coming back with <laughs> an audio cassette or with a dad tape at the time and that was it and it was fun it's like Assignment is different. Uh, like comedies and rom coms and this and that and here and there. It was the best school. So what what led you to go from that and to create your own your own business agency for music company? Because many with having done that would have been drawn into working for a studio, having done film composition and be going down that route. But you went down the entrepreneurial route. What what? drove you to that or what gave you just the confidence and the self-belief at such a young age it was the opposite it was still this belief that i'm can be good composer and i'd rather do it without anybody looking how i'm doing it because if i play a wrong note nobody can see and hear it and i can fix it (laughs) so it was totally the opposite and so the first assignment leaving uh, disney was because i thought i just I want to do it on my own and not just write for a person who is like in Palm Springs most of the time. And I was like, a lot of people knew me now and how I could write. And so I said, okay, I'll do my own thing. And I'm doing it from home and I don't have to drive to work. And the first assignment was to write music for Academy Awards. And I was thrilled and did that and recorded with little orchestra. And when I got the paycheck, now it's the first paycheck as a, individual contractor, they took out, I don't know, 50 or 60% of the check and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, this must be wrong. And I said, yeah, if you basically, the tax system is, they think you make this money in one day and then it's the highest, whatever deductions and this and that and here and there. And said, what can you do about this? If you have a company, then it's different. I said, okay, I'll make a company. And the great thing in LA is, okay, so I want to a company owner, what shall I do? And like call a lawyer and 10 hours later, you have your own company. And I remember going 
that meeting with that lawyer and we're going to the, the downtown building. And so the clerk says, so what's the name of your company? And the, oh my God, I don't have a company name. I don't want to call it Warsaw Company. And I, re- I remembered at the time Volkswagen had this campaign about Fahrvergnügen. I'm sure you remember that. They had this one word. Every English person kind of knew it's a German funny word, Fahrvergnügen. And Vergnügen is enjoyment. I said, oh my God, maybe I should make it Musikvergnügen with German spelling. And I said, okay, Musikvergnügen. And it was like, 10 seconds later, so, oh, how do you spell this? M-U-S-I-K-V-E-R-G-N-U-E. It's like, what? This is too long. So, no, it's like, it's, it's one word. So, all those Germans, they stink, like so long words. So, yeah, we just composite many things together. And then I realized it was again luck because everybody asked, how do you spell this? And you sp- yeah, I, I, and how do you pronounce it? pronounce it. And then they learn it. And so you do it, and then you crack up and it's funny. And then if this was the Rosova company, people would never remember that. Um, yeah, that it's was, certainly a conversation starter and mm-hmm. it sticks in the memory. Mm-hmm. So I got lucky there as well and then met young graphic students and we hit it off and talked about music and philosophy of music and sound and light and synesthesia. And they got very successful and I grew with them. And one is Kyle Cooper, I think the number one motion designer in history, he, he his big thing was Seven. The main titles to Seven at the time, and oh the, yeah, it's wonderful. Of them. And he really changed the, the whole um, motion design. And uh, one thing led to another, and then at one time, Imaginative Forces called me and said, "Hey, this, we're working on this movie. It's Schwartz. Who called you? Imaginary Forces. It's a design company." At the time, it was okay. RGALA. There's RGA in New York and RGA. Oh, because it was, yeah, so it was when Bob Greenberg yeah. was doing work for things like Aliens and, that was and the, all that. For one of the first ones, yeah, and, and Terminator was was the great thing with it. Mercury running down a glass and yeah. like those things from, and yeah, he, he started all this stuff. Like Greenberg is just such a vision, still is, and then New York just is one of those entities and Big awe, like the people he groomed. It's like Carl Cooper and Garson, you and Peter Frankfurt. They all come from that school, and like a brand new school. Mm-hmm. It's like this is so many design companies, successful design companies were all born at RGA, which became Imaginary Forces later on. And at one time, I know Garson, you called this, oh, there's this movie in Schwarzenegger, and I know the director hates the main title of the composer, and I really don't like it. I want that. The design looks great, and can you do something? And said, okay, I'll try. What do you need it by tomorrow? So he <laughs> sent me the main title, and Alan Silvestri was the main composer there. And I did something overnight, sound design and music, and delivered in the morning. They loved it, and they left it in there. And which like was politically a little bit awkward. And then I met Schwarzenegger afterwards, and everybody thought that, Schwarzenegger got me in there because we we're Austrians and I met mm-hmm. him because of that job. And again, this well, this, this little moments being down the right. And, and then a couple of other movies, like even where once they were not happy with Philip Glass and, and I had to replace the main title. Um, and there was like those moments and everything was one step, next step. But I never had this drive 
I want to be there in two years. I want to make this money or this successful or this award or that award. It was just having fun to work and having these possibilities to see amazing visuals and writing music to it. And that is so much fun and so much joy. You probably bored senseless of recounting the story of the thing that you're often interviewed about, which is the Intel Inside sort of uh, audio mnemonic. Having built a reputation and a network and connection with such incredible sort of graphic and design talents as you're mentioning, what then opened up the door to creating that work for for Intel? Again, it was something that just happened. Nobody can plan that. Kyle Cooper, working at RGA at the time as junior Mm. designer, called me and was something like, hey, Walter, I have this job, Intel. And I had no clue what Intel was. I was, I'm an Apple Mac person. I have no mm-hmm. clue. And it's this company, and they want to have a little signation sound. And I said, okay, I'll meet you at the agency. And he shows me the storyboard, six pictures of the Intel spiral, how it develops. And with the Intel and then the slogan Intel inside at the bottom and says, so we need some music. I think it was Thursday or Friday. <clears throat> and it's just a little, like three seconds. It can't be longer than three seconds and we need something on Monday. And yeah, it, it should wrap up. And Intel had a genius model. They said they would basically reimburse half of the media buy, 25% with product, 25% money. If you use that OM, that that mnemonic in the mm-hmm. end, and Pioneer, many companies, they used, of course, the Intel processors. So mm-hmm. at that time, I didn't know what a processor really, really looked like. I never opened up computers. This was the beginning when it all started. Like the normal person on the street had no clue what a processor was. And here you have to mm-hmm. advertise for processors, something you can't touch. If you touch it, it would break. And nobody really knows why you would need it. It's something which makes the computer run better, but I don't know. And Intel was only for certain engineers a name, but um, definitely nothing like now that everybody knows the name. I'm driving home and think three seconds, it's easy. But then when I sit down, you can't barely say a smart sentence in three seconds. It's like, you say something, it's just three seconds and it has a beginning, middle, and an end and stand. So I realized it was annoyingly difficult to do that. And there were no use cases before. There There were no mnemonics out there. And I got really frustrated. Nothing Thursday, nothing. I think I tried this the Beatles and Bach and whatever and find little <laughs> motifs and nothing made sense. And Sunday, it's like I'm really starting to freak out Sunday morning and I'm standing, I'm sitting in front of my piano and I have that, that board in front of me and I'm looking at it and I don't know if I should make circular music or it's like nothing was really resonating. And suddenly my eyes fall on the slogan, Intel Inside, that tagline they're having. And I thought, hmm. so if this was a song, it would be a song with four different notes. And since they're very precise and concise engineers, it could be 
it should be a rhythm which is very even, pum 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 pum, like four eight notes, and it should be something which is powerful, not emotional, and they said also that any music culture should relate to it, so it can't have like a minor second which would feel Arabic or that minus six, which is too emotional, Western classic music. So there were two intervals which came to mind. It's the fourth and the fifth, which are powerful, open, and have not too much emotional connotation other than being strong. And so that, okay, we'll start one, four, one, five, played it and thought, it's a nice little melody and talked to Carl Cooper about it. I mentioned what the story is and thought, it sounds interesting. What? How does it sound like? And I played it. Oh, it's good. And then we played it for Intel and same thing. Wow, it's a good story. How did it sound? Oh, it sounds good. And that was it. And we worked for two or three months on the sound. That was really painfully it's like also in those days there was not really good internet. They are up north in California. I remember every day I would lay three, four versions onto three quarter inch tape. You know, the three quarter inch tape. Oh, this must have been driving you insane. Yeah. Laying it back, FedEx it up there. Intel is so huge that they could only listen to it at two o'clock because it takes so long to bring a three quarter inch tape into the creatives room at Intel headquarters. Then at two o'clock, we had a one hour call, like for three months or so, every day, listening to another, gink, gink, gink. Anyone a little bit more blue? <laughs> no, a little bit more electric. No, a little bit more organic. No, a little bit this, a little bit that. And then those were hundreds and hundreds of different versions. And then finally it happened. And I think we finalized because we really had to go on air and that was it. And the rest is history. Wow. Can you just explain for people that aren't um, musicians what tonic to subdominant structure is? So when yeah, when we play melodies, every note has a relationship to the next one and the prior one. And it's almost mm -hmm. like a mathematical pattern. So when you are in a certain key, you can say the name of the key is the tonic, is that first step mm -hmm. if we are in the... Uh, key of C, C is the one, is the tonic. It's the, mm -hmm. in a classical sense, that note you expect to end the melody. It grounds it. It's a resolution. You have landed. You're done. And in the good classical music, if you have a symphony in C, it will end up on a C chord. And usually from five to one. So it has a really great resolution. So you can go up for like on those white keys on the piano. You can imagine this. You can go up four steps. That's a fourth. So four notes that will bring you to the F. Then you go back to the C and then you go five steps up to the G. And that's basically that one, four, one, five. So it's very mathematical. It's a pattern and it also looks good when you draw it up and makes mathematical sense and can be equated to a lot of other things and it's something very powerful and open it's interesting because it was the very much the early days of mm -hmm. what's now become known as 
sonic branding mm-hmm. and sonic logos, and everyone's jumping on that bandwagon today. And mm-hmm. I, you know, for people say that you know, in the future, every brand will have its its sonic branding to the sense that you know a lot of brands like even Mastercard have even dropped the term Mastercard and mm-hmm. moving mm-hmm. towards just visual and sonic. When you look at the landscape now and you listen to them, is there anything that you go, oh, these guys have got it right, and then there are other ones you think you should go back to the drawing board? To me, one of the most powerful ones is Southwest Airlines, because it's Mm -hmm. such a cheeky, incredible story behind it again. Boeing has a UI sound, a user interface sound. So when fasten seatbelt sign is prompted you have that clink sound that is the boeing generated sound for fasten seatbelts southwest airlines licensed that sound for their branding which is one of the most incredible things so on every other competitor's boeing plane you hear that sound which is actually the competitor and Boeing allowed that to get licensed. I'm sure they pay a lot of money for this. So to me, it can't get better than that. That's just, that's, that's just brilliance, political brilliance. And it's a great sound and everybody knows it and you hear it and think Southwest. So it definitely works. And it's interesting that so many times the sound, the timbre of the sound is so much more powerful than the melody. I, over the last two decades, I spoke in Hong Kong to God knows where about Intel. And I like to test the audience and I play sounds and say, please raise the hand when you recognize what it is. And I might do James Bond and the guitar and stuff like this. And I have also this one snippet where I play the Intel mnemonic melody with one different note, but something which kind of music could make sense, one, three, one, five, which is just a nice chord arpeggio in that sense, but same tempo on a violin. And people definitely don't get that. Then I play the perfect melody, like the one, four, one, five. Mm It's still people, some recognize the melody. Then I play the sound of the, this strange marimba electric sound there is with a different melody and people immediately all of them raise their hands. So the sound quality is more of a pointer than the melody, which is very huh. interesting. Interesting, that is, yeah. And if you hear stuff like, I think it's uh, Hard Day's Night or like some of the of those iconic tracks, you, you only need half a second and you know what the track is so there's no real music listen to it the sound quality which is so powerful i'm just going to go off a tangent i mean all of us are have transitioned to some form of music platform from you know whether it be spotify to apple music to any of the others uh, yeah it might be amazon music or google music but i mean after being an early itunes devotee i then was an early adopter of 
Spotify and built up all my library and soundtracks and everything only recently to have moved back to Apple because of the quality and the dynamism of the music and there's something in the quality of it with particularly with the new headphones yeah the the AirPods what what is that why is it that I can no longer I can't go back to Spotify because the actual experience it just isn't the same as when I walk around and I've got this dynamic sound what's what causes that because it's an visceral emotional reaction. Sound quality. And you're absolutely right. There are many factors. One is the LUFS, which is a very clever maximizer dynamic range. In the olden days, and we had to deliver music in broadcast minus 18 dB. So it has enough headroom and it doesn't destroy the amplifiers of your system at home and, 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 the machines which air the system, the, the signal. So there's a, there's a lot of headroom in there. Then when the CD really and the digital world came to us, suddenly we were always basically zero to the beast, the loudest uh, tape or a, if a digital device can take. If it would be over that, it's just distortion and you can't listen to it. So mm-hmm. they mastered it just barely under the minus 0.1. So it's really loud. And when you look at those tracks it's like basically they look like this they're super loud and loud is a qualitative better i can play two pieces of music to you and and if they're similar and one is louder you prop 99 will say the louder one is a better track loud is better and th- there's a fight and there's amazing machines to make it even louder and appear louder and now finally they realized something gets lost that the dynamic like when you listen to that old Beatles track or Presley track there's quietness and then loud it's like and you can see those waves that go they look like this and uh, Britney Spears basically have one line and then it stops and that's the dynamic of a track the breathing of a track that how it you can engage with it and and it's too mm-hmm. much information for your ears and if that is you know, an mp3 which has basically errors because it's compressed so your brain has to make up connections then it's draining for your brain and in health we really know bad audio quality bad mp3 files are really not good for your health and so you're absolutely right in what you're saying that if the quality is not absolutely good it it is you don't know why but it really affects you mm-hmm. interesting okay well that's a nice segue talking of health audio health to take us to your innovation and we obviously you were jobby from 1993 from intel and obviously there's a large body of work you did between 93 and setting up in 2015 health tunes but maybe you could just talk to us about why you set up what you describe as the streaming digital pharmacy of search searchable by symptoms offering evidence-based music that help and from, from what i believe it was done to scratch your own itch or to treat your son luca's yeah. condition that he was suffering from because western medicine couldn't actually address the issues so when luca my son was five he developed leg patess like but this is the strange illness, disease, symptom where the femur falls apart. So basically the hip joint falls apart and regrows. And that process can take six years. It's very painful. And you can imagine for a young boy, it's just devastating. You can't walk. Mm. And, and, and there was not a ton of literature out there. And 
different opinions with different hospitals and surgery and laying in bed or having metal braces or this and that. And luckily my wife had the sense to opt into osteopathy, acupuncture, strict diet and sound healing. And also at that time I got lucky. I built a music production house and I, that was acquired by BMG. And I thought I want to take it a little bit easy now. And, 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 and after Lucas really fast recovery, a year later, he was running again. I thought I want to do something in that, that world. I want to give back and, and be able to help other very sad, frustrated parents, which have to go through this. And first it was really strictly about leg protests and the hospitals ask us, I've never seen something like this, that the boy would run after that severe leg protest a year later. And was was this pain. in, was this in LA or in yeah, Austria? Los Angeles, Los Angeles. And we talked yeah. to UC and UCLA. The great American spirit that is that they were curious how did you guys do that and um, I know in many other countries it would be oh this is impossible and we know what we're doing and, and you can't do it on your own so it was and partnerships started and we of course shared what we did and how we did and it really pointed that music and sound was a huge important part in that healing and so I'm a technophobe and I thought I when I put a platform together where I, anybody anywhere could tap into that. And that was the beginning of Helton's. Then I realized that music can do so much more like in chronic pain, even epilepsy. We, 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 we learned that there's something like drug resisting epilepsy. So there are mm-hmm. patients, especially kids, there's no medicine for them because it's drug resistant. There is one piece of music. It's a Mozart piece for four hands, the KV448, that reduces seizures by 70%. Wow. And, and there are two professors, one is in Salzburg, one is in Prague, who really studied like deeply into that. And, and they're trying to find other music, which does the same. Nobody's found anything closely to that. This piece of music, is working like an incredible piece with medicine. That's why I call my service a pharmacy, a digital pharmacy. You can prescribe mm-hmm. music. Like you say, one piece of Mozart music composition works against one condition mm-hmm. uh, to such an efficacious degree. How do you, where was the process of discovery? And to identify one condition against a ter- certain type of music, is there a is there an, an algorithm you've developed to do that? I have an algorithm to optimize it. It's a lot of observation. There's something called music therapy where they research that and have wonderful clinic studies and try different pieces of music. Barely anybody can say this music works for that because it is about trying and and, and finding the efficacy. The only time where you really know why it is working and what is working is an Alzheimer's with lyric recall. So when you sing along to a track, your lyric memory is in a different part in the brain than the speaking memory when you talk about something. And those centers 
most of the time get attacked much later than the speaking. And I've seen and 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 the studies about this that Alzheimer dementia patients who are not able to communicate anymore start singing along with a track they remember from their childhood. With that, the brain oxygenates and becomes more active and brings you out of that dementia phase. You can't heal Alzheimer this way, but you can definitely stop it in a sense and can find the patient and communicate with the patient in that moment again. And it's like a miracle. It's like you... Um, wow, that's incredible. Those patients change. And, and so in that sense, you know, okay, this person loved the Beatles when she was 20 years old and sang those songs. And now she is 80 years old and loves to sing them. And you, you played those songs and she remembers them and has them deep memory. And that is getting uncovered and she tunes in. Another thing is what we instinctively do. Phylogenetically, mothers, when the baby is uneasy, you take the baby to your chest with the head close to the heart on the skin. And the baby is basically mm -hmm. listening to the breathing, feeling the breathing and the heart rate of the mother. And that entrains. So we take this process in music. Premies often when they are in pain have a heart rate of 190. And have mm -hmm. videos where we use music and, and we align the music to 190 beats per minute as well and have an algorithm to slow down the music and the baby's heart rate follows it and trains wow. and goes to 155 Amazing. in a minute. No medication needed. And those are miracles. And it's so powerful. And sometimes the days I think Music entertains us, but the real reason why music is medicinal. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, it has it. It would suggest that music plays a much bigger part in how we are, let's say, coded as humans. That yeah. there's something bigger at play. If it is therapeutic, then Absolutely. there's something we don't really understand about the nature of music and it's uh, how it's woven into the fabric of life. Yeah, and, and, and I think we don't have to understand it. Maybe it even works better because we don't understand And I'm a pretty scientific person, but I think I, I, I believe in science and magic, as weird as it sounds. And if you know that this track does that and you tried it 100 times and 99 times it really worked, I don't know why. It's magic, but this science does... Research behind it, testing behind it. Some of it is really in clinic studies with double blind testing control groups and it works. And actually, it doesn't matter why it works. It's important that it works. Mm -hmm. So, where are you in terms of working with clinicians and medical researchers about looking at different medical conditions? I mean, obviously, there's so much research going on in. I was at a, my partner's uncle's birthday party last weekend and ended up speaking to two Scottish uh, doctors from the Mayo Clinic. I've been there 40 years and fascinating hearing the, the, the work and research that still goes on today in terms of gastroenterology. But also, you know, you think about everything that's been happening with conditions, obviously with, with, with COVID and vaccines to sort of address. And, and I spoke to someone else doing a lot of work in RNA, mnra vaccines and how 
that will become a revolutionary sort of piece of technology to address mm-hmm. future illnesses. So how do you work with when you've got something that's so revolutionary as music therapy? How do you then collaborate with other medical researchers to combine forces? Yeah, the, the only way to communicate with them is through evidence-based research because mm-hmm. there are plenty of music platforms out there and, and I'm not talking for or against them, but it's incense, swaying, sitar playing, and that's your life and I'll make a change. But you have, but in the hospitals, it's a different system. You, you have to be safe about it. It has to be replicable. It has to have efficacy and, and it has to be plausible. And that's what we do with, and that makes the big difference. And there's none of, no other competitor out there. There are many platforms with music, but everything is evidence based. And that opened up the doors right now at Wellstar Health in, in Atlanta. They have 300 hospitals. They're rolling out experience rooms with health tunes and immersive audio and have extremely high success. And, and they are hospital clinical environment. So they have the research, the, mm-hmm. the research data and how to get the, the, the biometrics going. And it's, it's, they couldn't believe how powerful and successful it is and how people like it. And so we're not talking against taking medication. It's like, we need doctors. We need surgery when it's needed, but a lot of it can be amplified and, and optimized with music. And we need those simple solutions. It's such an expensive world Mm -hmm. hospitals. If music can help to reduce the hospital stay by 10, 15%, then hospital doesn't lose money. It's like, there's only gains. The patient is out sooner, which they like. The cost Mm -hmm. of the patient is reduced by 10, 15%. And the hospitals have the next person waiting there anyway. So it's, it's, it's a plus plus, even for the payers. We would like to work more with payers because they will see what they can save, they can save a lot of money. And right now with isolation, so many people have mental challenges because they are alone. And music, with music, you are not alone anymore. Music is to connect. Music is to feel something else, get new emotion and, and Margot stimulation going. So especially now, music is an incredible, powerful modality. So you have a platform that people can sign up to, healthtunes. Healthtunes.org, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how, how does that work if someone was to sign up there? They're not in hospital. How do they identify and how do you work with them to assign the right music therapy for them? How, how, just if anyone's interested and, yeah. let's say, has someone that's mm-hmm. suffering from a condition. Yeah, I always was mesmerized by how simple Apple makes everything work. So I thought, is there a way to get what you were asking with three, four keystrokes or searches? And so once you're in Health Tunes and it's a browser app, it's an Android app, an iOS app, you basically log in, so it's personalized to you, and you type in whatever symptom or target diagnosis you have. This might be chemotherapy side effects. It might be epilepsy. It might be pain or sleep or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. It's like you name it and you'll 
find that then. Then the next step is the liking of music because there is, of course, let's say in Alzheimer music, if you love rock and roll, like if you rock and roll, if you like classic, if you for classic or jazz, it's like it really depends on you need to like that music and you're there and you click a button and you, you can get into that therapy and you can read up why it's helping as well because you have all the research and attached to it. So it's basically two searches and you get what you're looking for. Amazing. Did you ever, have you ever reflected on the fact that you've come full circle from your father and your <laughs> being in, in medicine? I knew you were quite the Yes. Yeah. The, we're laughing about this. It's like I, I couldn't escape. Uh, <laughs> he got me then. <laughs> yeah, eventually. Yes. Yes. Just reeled you back in. But with a different perspective, I don't have to deal with drawing blood and and, and, yeah. <laughs> and t- I, I touch the people emotionally but not physically do you think it has a place i mean i think you know you're obviously made great um strides with the application of this but it feels like we're still in the uh, the early days of, of music therapy that i mean i spoke i've got a couple of clients that are psychotherapists and i spoke to one of them about it and she said oh yeah that's something that we are sort of very aware of and would be certainly interested in working with they deal with children and ADHD and and yeah. autism so i think it is there is a growing awareness of the <clears throat> the value of <clears throat> music therapy but <clears throat> in terms of where i mean obviously coming out of covid it's been a great reset people are questioning whether they want to go back to the workplace and there's a time for re opportunity for organizations to reimagine the workplace <clears throat> Are you working with any businesses or organizations to rethink the way that music is used to create, let's say, happier, more healthier workplaces if and when people go back? Absolutely. And and it doesn't matter if you go back to your office or at home. We offer corporate wellness that could be used to the companies and then, of course, the person's discretion. Start the day with a specific therapy, which is personalized to your needs and start a working mm-hmm. day this way or end it this way and the companies they would allow if this is a 20 minute therapy to say you can take 10 minutes as personal time and 10 minutes we paid for um some even say the whole 20 minutes are on us we know that you're more productive and happier this way and it's even team building if you listen together in those experience rooms and yeah, it's, it's really getting there. It's like, it's, I can sense that energy and that openness about it. That's great. If someone that hears us and wants to reach out to you, how would they go about connecting to maybe come and do a cons- consultation for their business? Definitely. Just email us info at healthness.org or me personally, Walter at healthness.org. And either myself mm-hmm. or a professional doctor will get back to you and, and we'll will answer and we're very open to create corporate wellness. I think that's a powerful way to get out of isolation, out of depression, out of inactivity and getting into connectivity in a sense. So before we move on to quick four questions, I had read that you've been doing some really interesting work also with artificial intelligence. You're obviously sort of a, a pretty busy individual during the the pandemic and you have completed 
the unfinished Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. So could you just give us a, a little abridged version as to why and how? Again, serendipity, I was asked by a philharmonic in Vienna to arrange the second movement, Seventh Symphony of Beethoven, for a very specific virtuoso group in film style music. And then mm-hmm. they used that in Tokyo at Future Lab at the museum. And it really turned out great, wonderful recording of this musician. I was so proud of it that I sent that. I don't know why I sent it, but I sent it to Matthias Röder, who is um, head of Karin Institute in Salzburg. And I know him, and I thought, well, this worked out great. Maybe he likes it. A week later, he calls back and says, hey, Walter, would you like to write with Beethoven? And, you know, if somebody calls you out of blue and says, you want to write with Beethoven, you write. And I want to also sing with George Harrison and live next <laughs> week. And I don't know, and fly to Mars the next week. No, no, no. They might do this later, but right now, do you want to f- finish the 10th symphony? And I said, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. We have a team of Harvard and Rutgers and, and Cornell professors, and we need a composer. And there's a technical liaison between the AI department and the world of music creativity. Mm-hmm. And so I know this guy is serious. Like, like, of course I said yes. And like, in, like, like, and that's my mantra for life. And I would suggest is then mm-hmm. just say always yes. And then regret it later on. Of course I had <laughs> sleepless nights. And I said, oh my God, why did I say yes? But I said yes. And we met them. We learned so much. We made tons of mistakes. We learned with every mistake. And that was the beauty. Like Rutgers University, Ahmed Elgabad is one of, is the AI person in creativity. And uh, it was always productive. It's like, it's, it never felt like we failed, but it was important to get to the next step and next step. And suddenly the symphony was done and we performed it in, in, in Bonn first and then in Hamburg and then it was performed in Dubai last week in Taiwan and it will open up the Corinthian summer and it made in the charts, it, it got, I think, number two in the album charts and it's like my god it's like i'm sure beethoven is proud of it as well and i'm super proud and and I where can, can we listen breathing. to it mm-hmm. it's where can we listen to it if they type in spotify yeah it's like and, and, and there's a cd available as well and mm-hmm. you can type in my name <laughs> beethoven 10 and it, it comes up and um, it's Wonderful. a great recording with Cameron Carpenter. He's the world's best organist. It's like, it's like a bow down to him. He's just incredible what he did. And it was such a beautiful experience. And we did it to show the world how important creativity is and that technology can help us to be more creative. We're not saying that AI was replacing us. We would like to give that algorithm to the world and have fun and create. Only two, but less than two percent of the world is living off of creativity. As kids, we are super creative. Something is happening. We need to be more creative, and that's my mantra: be creative with everything. You can creative in business. You can be creative driving the car differently. Take a different route the next day, and start with little steps and. Write music, like poetry, paint, invent something, just enjoy it. I mean, there are so many different views in terms of where that we will go with the future of 
AI and humanity and there's dystopian and utopian views. But I think it is, you know, I think you're absolutely right that it opens up the opportunity for us as artificial intelligence and general artificial intelligence can take away the the non-creative aspects of our life. It opens up pathways, unimaginable pathways for opportunities mm-hmm. to change how we think about education of our children, to mm-hmm. inspire us to become much more more curious, more creative, more fulfilled humans. And I think it is exciting the work you're doing. We have a question about what do you want your legacy to be? But I think what you're doing, you've almost answered that. But I wonder if there is something else beyond inspiring people to be more creative. To be inspiring in a little and and for the humanity and and I I love those projects which impact and and make people's lives more interesting and fun and inspire. Being a good father is important as well. Mm-hmm. And um, trying is, and, but also knowing that I'm in peace, it's like whatever I'm doing, it's like I'll try the best I can and know that I can't be the perfect father, but I think I want to be a good father. How old are your children? 27, 25, 15. I mean, obviously they've passed the point, the 20s, 20-year-olds are past the point where you have to worry about them being sucked into the spiral of social media. But what's your view in terms of how, as parents, have to deal with children that are getting drawn into things like TikTok addiction, where potentially it's damaging to creativity? You know, I, I, I don't think that TikTok per se is, is damaging. It's how much you glue to it. I think for the first time ever in history, anybody can be creative film yourself and be seen by the world and can be successful. Mm-hmm. 30 years ago, you had to be really lucky that a record company likes you and invests in you and does that. And that's so much easier now. So TikTok can be the incredible creativity distribution. You can see it as this, but you also can see it as intrusive. Mm-hmm. And like anything, like a life can kill you and a life can save your life from surgery. Okay. Um, should we move the quick fire questions? Mm-hmm. Okay. What principles do you stand by? Balance. Like balance just, in terms of that we have to avoid being so extreme anymore and, and, and it's, it's not the good and the bad. It's like being in, in balance. It's like, I think nature in balance is your, your physiology in balance is when you are at ease and when everything plays together and where mm-hmm. everything suddenly makes sense and nothing's overpowering and there's no power fight, no power struggle. Okay. Hard choices. What hard choices have you made that might have felt tough at the time, but when, in retrospect, you look back, they were the right decisions? Perseverance that I would never give up. And so many times, especially as a composer, I heard, oh my God, this is shit. Why did you do this? And going back, don't discuss and make another one. Yeah, the perseverance of uh, completing that Intel <laughs> project yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> an example of that. Yes, I mean you're a innately creative person as a as a sound inventor. Where do you go? Where do you find new ideas? In my dreams, a ton I dreamt of 
So it's inside myself. Mm -hmm. And then I love to travel and see different things. And creativity is to see things from a different perspective. And, and then even trying to measure now, it's like in universities, can you measure creativity? And it's basically mm -hmm. that one experiment where I give you an object and tell me what you can, what comes to mind with the object. If you say brick, some people might say, build a house, build, build a wall. And some people would say, you mm -hmm. can file your nails on it. You can break a window with it and you can try to cook it and eat it. And that's creativity where like you have connections in your brain, which are so far stretched and unexpected. And the Picassos, they found something new. It was a quantum leap in creativity and it's unexpected and bold. And I think the word bold mm -hmm. is very important for creativity. Yeah, for sure. What is the one problem worth solving? I am so convinced if everybody can play out her, his, their creativity, that the world would be a better place. Certainly, from the answers we get to this question that range from everything from really climate is a major part of it and our political divide. I suppose when we can... It's all about solving problems, and if creativity mm -hmm. is the heart of solving problems, then you're probably right. It probably sits at the top of the pyramid. Yes, absolutely. Um, you've got an opportunity to invite four people from history around for dinner in Vienna or LA um, to help you plan for a better future. <laughs> are they sitting with me or are they cooking? <laughs> well, I think you're doing the cooking, and you're there, there okay. to help you solve the world's uh, future problems. Uh, who would those people be alive or dead it yeah, doesn't have to be of course Nikola Tesla because Einstein then we need those a different poetic force in the roomy and mm -hmm. then because ah, he is so yeah. Iranian Persian poet yeah the emperor of music Johann Sebastian Bach mm. ah Bach and not Mozart you know Mozart was uh, Mozart and Beethoven might have had a similar experience on the earth, Bach, for the first time. Then, when I, like, I, I can relate to the incredible letters about when they discovered Bach, how they felt. Ah, okay. For those who maybe a link to that, and I might follow up and see if I can put something in the show notes for that. Mm -hmm. A question uh, no one asks you that you wish they would, or stop asking you. Don't ask me about Intel anymore. I. I think the big question is always around creativity and I love to hmm. talk and find ways for myself and for everybody around me to unleash the creativity and the joy of being creative. Hmm. Okay. What would your advice be to someone who's about to graduate study that might have a great ambition, but it's being told by people around them, forget it, that's impossible? Don't think about the future as your whole life. Think about the next week, what you enjoy and what you can do now to grow that week. Even though Will Smith totally fell out of graces, he, I listened to his audiobook and he mm -hmm. talks about it as a boy that his father made him build a wall and they spent, I think, from February till September, he and his brother to build the wall. Then one point the father is listening to the to Will and he's complaining well never finished the wall 
and the short story is father says look at this what is this it's a brick dad think about one brick at a time and you lay the brick and you're done with the brick and don't think about the wall because then you will always feel you never finish and that is something as simple as this is if you look for job now don't think about that swimming pool you need to have and the whole family and the big this and that and success or not enjoy the moment again and whatever is your creativity what is your language trust in it and have fun with it don't be scared because scared is the great advice. antidote to everything and and if you're different oh maybe that's one helping story like when I started we were eight students at USC that year we got assignments and pretty much every assignment seven sounded similar and one was very different and I always delivered something different and it's fun I didn't do it for the sake of it I just felt differently and I think that is a big part of my success okay for, for thought you're a composer We've got to ask a karaoke question. What would be your go-to karaoke song? I have the worst, I have the worst singing voice, and and, and I know that. And um, <laughs> don't go to karaoke. If I will parent like the classical composer, the karaoke song, I would pick him. But it's probably a Beatles song, like "In a Love or something. Something joyous. Okay, then, right? A, t- a TV series or a film or a documentary that you've seen recently that you think someone should watch? Uh, for me, film is a social gathering and I saw Dune with my whole family and I enjoyed that because the film is, a, it's like, it's amazingly made and the music is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's really incredibly well produced and composed and made. And it's, it was just great to have the family around and the great, mm-hmm. just amazing visuals and the great score. It was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so I'll, I'll make sure I sort of, uh, put that on my list as well. Yeah. Okay, we offer a book to a listener that comes up with good comments on Instagram or on the website. Uh, what would that book be that we should offer them? I think also tying into that one question about advice for students, the Creativity Code, Marcus Dusatoy, he's a mathematician oh, not at right Oxford. That. It mm-hmm. reads like a thriller. It's from the Go computing to creativity to AI and music. And it's just, it's incredible. It opens up the doors to that world. Okay. We'll put that on the list. Man. And definitely I'll read that myself. It sounds good. Um, and final question. Who should we interview next? Beethoven. <laughs> well, no, no, we can't do that. <laughs> Unless you've um, got some sort of uh, an incredible way of bringing back a holographic reality um, of, of of Beethoven. <laughs> but the, 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 a good answer. <laughs> that, that, I'll do everything. I'll help you. I'll dig him out. Like The, the partner I have now, uh, Michael Tetkins, he found it spatial, that immersive mm-hmm. experience. And the short story is like he, Perseverance. Five years ago, he called me and he is a very powerful person who just, his company got acquired and, 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 and he called me hmm. to set up a system, a sound system for his 
how his family and the reptiles he is running around in, in, in his huge garden. And I realized that he wants something which wasn't possible. And I said, you know, you you are you have the funds, you have technician and engineering, just why don't you make a company doing this? Nobody can do what you want. I don't want to just take your money and like I'm sure you can do it. And I think it's, he was first a little bit miffed that I would answer like this. Half a year later, he calls his Walter to get advice. I started the company and I have a person from like the director of the iPhone and the CEO of LucasCell. That's like the most amazing people. And mm-hmm. fast forward five years, he's presented that company now at South by Southwest and it was not like, successful. It was hugely successful. It's incredible. What's it called? Spatial. Spatial, it's the immersive audio experience, which is speaker agnostic, which is the incredible part. You, It's basically a software service. You can have it at home. You can have it in hospitals. You can have this in your cars and shopping centers. You name it, and it turns your world into an immersive paradise. Interesting. When we think about the future of automotive and autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. and what those will be, when we have those space, how that transportation space is going to change. That's really interesting. When you bring that together with spatial and what you're doing with, with health, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. imagine the the future of how we think about moving from A to B changes dramatically. That's very interesting. Um, mm. so okay. I'll introduce you to Michael Petkins. He is as a, one of those incredible thinkers. And he is in the middle. I don't know if he will share it. He is changing with what he's doing and what the plans are. And it's powerful and inspiring. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Look forward to the connection. Um, well, Walter, uh, it's been wonderful for you to share the time and your great wisdom and, and, and answers the questions. And just acknowledge you for your humbleness and your just inspiration and how you've applied your curiosity and creativity to solving to an, an incredible body of work that probably most people aren't aware of but have probably heard so much of your work and don't have the um, now can now put a name to it but also the work you're doing to make the world a healthier better place through again the creativity uh, through health tunes and so thank you and i think we're just at the beginning of the next phase of world changing applications that you're developing so it's been a pleasure so thank you very much thanks for that wonderful hour we have together and inspiring questions have a great day in beautiful hot austin send me some of the tea <laughs> <Yeah>, i will <laughs> it'll be coming to you soon i'm sure in in austria yeah okay well thank, thank you. you okay that's all for this week folks if you're enjoying the show please either follow download or subscribe on your preferred podcast player We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.